Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back with you. We were gone last Sunday, um, kind of a special weekend for us. Our daughter, Hallie, turned 13 this summer. Um, and uh, we've seen uh, those who have gone before us do cool things, like take their kids on trips when they hit 13 or 16 or maybe high school graduation. So we're like, let's do a, let's do a 13-year-old thing. And we would have done something in the summer, but uh, she's a big uh, basketball player. That's her big sport. And we saw that uh, the UConn women's team was coming to Notre Dame on December 4th. Like, let's push your trip back. Let's do that. So uh, those of you in the sports world know that that's a, uh, that type of a game is a really big deal. So took her down to South Bend, bought her the most expensive steak she'll have uh, maybe in her entire life. Uh, we are definitely a meat-eating family. The next steak like that she eats will be paid for by her husband. And so uh, gave her that experience and uh, walked out of that restaurant smiling. Uh, and, and had a great, great weekend with that. But good to be back with you guys. Uh, Joe started a series for us last week called Fear Not. Basically, no surprise, taking some of those key moments in the Christmas story where an angel shows up and says, don't be afraid, right? Fear not. And then the story plays out, did a great job talking about Mary and some of the things that she experienced in the Christmas story. But he landed on this idea that nothing is impossible with God. Fear not nothing is impossible. But the, the key part of that was saying, this isn't, see, us, us, even us Christians like to take this and, and make it, okay, uh, with God, the unlikely becomes more likely. That's not what we're talking about. Some of us, we like to make it, hey, with God, the long shot becomes a little bit more realistic. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the impossible becomes possible. Nothing is impossible. And this should impact the way that we see the world. This should impact how we pray. This should impact how we obey. This should impact how we live. And, and, but, but along with that, living like nothing is impossible creates uh, maybe the biggest tension in our pursuit of Jesus. Because if I say yes, if I follow, if I obey, what does that mean for me in my everyday life? Or maybe to make it a little bit more personal, maybe to build the tension a little bit more, what will people say to me? What will people say about me? What will people think if I actually do what God is asking me to do? If I actually live like God is real and powerful and in control, if I actually live like God is the ultimate authority in my life, if I actually live like God is capable of accomplishing impossible things, not unlikely things, not improbable things, but impossible things like the virgin birth, with Mary, like Joe talked about last week. And it's, it's this age-old battle between what people think and what God thinks. Those two things collide in our lives all the time. And if you claim to be a Christ follower, if you claim to have any love for God at all, any, any care for what he says in his word, you've faced these types of situations. i got memories rolling around in my brain right now. Like I can go back uh, to middle school, being on the bus. And my brother and I uh, were a year apart, so uh, for whatever reason, he was not on the bus at this time, but I remember two of my friends approaching me on the bus and saying, your brother said that this thing is wrong and we shouldn't be doing and saying stuff like that. Do you agree with that? And I remember having that moment of like, oh man, am I going to back my brother up on this because I agree with him or am I going to throw him under the bus and get myself out of this stressful situation. And in that moment, I said, no, he's being ridiculous. It's not that big of a deal, right? And I have this regret. Now, not a life-altering thing, and yet this regret that I, I gave up on my brother in that situation in order to save my own skin in the midst of that conversation, right? So I have, I have that regret, this collision of what people think and what God thinks. 
I got positive examples, right? I'm not a total screw-up in my whole life. I, I remember uh, my first year of college, found myself in a situation where a group of people were in my dorm room and were choosing to watch things that I wouldn't, didn't want to watch or endorse. And so I found myself abandoning my own dorm room for a night just because I didn't want to support that. And that brought about some interesting conversations, like how come you're leaving? How come you're not sticking around? So I've had those moments where I end up on the positive side of, of what people think versus what God thinks. Just a few months ago, we were in the midst of uh, Talon's uh, travel baseball season, found ourselves sitting around the pool deck with a bunch of other parents, great group of families that, that uh, we've been able to hang out with over the last few years with, with his baseball stuff. But it was a Saturday night, we had just finished up some tournament stuff that day and, and got invited over to hang out. And, and as we're sitting around, it's like, ah, we, we, we got to get going, got a busy day tomorrow, and they're like, oh yeah, and they, they know what we do, what, what I do, and, and what we're about with the church stuff, and... And I was like, before you go, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I was like, oh, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. And, and uh, again, you find yourself in that situation. Like, how, how legit of an answer am I about to give in this moment? I'm, I, you know, I'm getting up to leave. And I'm, well, you should do your sermon for us right now. I'm like, no, I mean, I mean we're talking 25, 30 minutes. You know, you, you don't want to hear the whole thing. And trying to get myself out of this situation. Because in my head, I'm thinking, if this was a marriage talk, be like, oh, yeah, uh, mutual submission within a relationship. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. That's, that's why. That's, that's smart. I like that. Or, or even like a, a money talk, right? Money talks are awkward at church, but out in the real world, you're like, generosity is wise. And you're like, yeah, that's right. That's pretty good. I, those, are, those aren't scary. This happened to be the week. It was something I, I wanted to throw out coming out of the, the shooting in Texas that had happened early this summer. And so they're pushing me, and I know what my landing point is. And they're like, well, we'll just tell us, like, the main idea. What, what's it about? And I'm like, all right. And this whole battle is happening in my head. Like, uh, they're, they're not going to like this. And then God's like, I'm going to like this. And now we got this tension. <laughs> and I realize here's a group of people, most of them unchurched, asking me to tell them what my sermon is about the next morning. I was like, all right. Lord, you put it on T for me. I'm going to take a swing. That's all I can do. So I said, okay, the main idea is the world is broken, and the only solution is Jesus. And they're looking at me. <laughs> and I'm like, this is too much. I got I to gotta do something. So I go, have fun sleeping on that tonight. And everybody started laughing. So, so it was this awkward moment, and finally after, I mean, unchurched people pushing me to share Christ with them, right? I'm like, I'm not sure I want to do this right now. But it's that same tension, like my brother on the bus, people in my dorm room, right? This tension between what people think and what God thinks we all face, that the struggle is real. And yet that struggle is not new. And it's the same struggle that we find in the section of the Christmas story that we're going to hit this morning. This is a struggle that has been going on ever since the beginning and it's going to happen with our guy Joseph this morning in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, 18. I'm just going to read the first part and we'll, we'll get into it. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So a couple context things just to, to lay the foundation for what we're doing this morning. First thing, the context of Joseph and Mary, right? And, and if you were to read... Uh, a little bit earlier in Matthew, if we read the first part of Luke, what we find are the genealogies, this lineage of the Messiah, all the way through Joseph, all the way through Mary. 
And, and basically it's establishing this, this reality that it had to be Mary or someone else in her lineage. It had to be Joseph or someone else in his lineage because when it came to the Messiah, the Messiah definitely had to be Jewish, definitely had to be in the line of David, have, have some claim as an heir to the throne of David, had to have some connection with Bethlehem. And so the fact that it was Mary, the fact that it was Joseph is a very big deal in itself because of the family tree that they existed in. Second thing, and Joe hit on this a little bit last week. By the way, if you missed it last week, go back and catch Joe's talk. Did a great job talking about Mary and, and that whole deal. We have a youth pastor at this church who is mature. It pains me to say that. He's mature, <laughs> loves and handles scripture well, and loves teenagers. Those are three things. That's a difficult combination to find. And so uh, I dread the day when some giant church throws six figures at Joe and he, and he takes it and leaves. And, uh, but uh, for at least now, uh, we've got a really solid dude back there doing student ministry. So if you've got a teenager, I would take advantage of that. Second thing, so when, when it comes to their engagement, um, basically they, that engagement in their times, same legal status as being married. This was as official as it gets, right? They're not married. There's been no ceremony. There's no, been no physical consummation yet, but there's been a legit commitment between Mary's father and Joseph, right? A, a, a legit contractual agreement. I don't know how you feel about that, but it doesn't matter, right? It's their culture. It's their time period. And there is an understanding between Joseph and Mary and her entire family. And in addition to that, there's an understanding within the whole community that something official has happened. Something official is going on. There's even been an exchanging of gifts as a part of that agreement. So this is very official. And to separate at any point now would require a divorce, papers and all, right? This was official. This, this relationship was as much a marriage as you can have without the pastor and the expensive meal and the cruise to the Western Caribbean, right? That, so this is official. And so as we continue on with, the, with 18 and 19, keep that in mind. This is a legit relationship that is in jeopardy here. Matthew 1, 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before there was any physical consummation, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, it says he was a righteous man, and yet he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her Quietly. Now imagine the response within their community, within their two families. Imagine the questions that would come out. You're telling me that you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, very religious culture, right? And so we tend to look at this like, oh, they just say it's from the Holy Spirit and everybody is cool. So, so here's the thing, it's, it's a religious culture. They have the Old Testament, they have the prophecies, and yet I think the reaction was about the same as what you'd get today. Imagine a teenage girl showing up pregnant and saying, I've been pure. It was the Holy Spirit who has impregnated me. You'd be like, mm, I got some questions, right? Let's have a conversation. So, so you have to remember, this is a religious culture, but they're in the midst of 400 years of silence that we find between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There have been no prophecies to speak of. There have been no miraculous moments to speak of. No word from heaven that is recorded. No waters being parted recently. No empty jars of oil showing up full all of a sudden. And so this move of the Holy Spirit enters a world that had little to no experience with Holy Spirit occurrences. 
So they have a Jewish culture, right? a religious culture, and yet imagine today, right? It, it's entering a world that's cynical about such things, skeptical about such things. Imagine something like that. This happens outside and inside the church. Anytime a book of Acts moment happens in the world today, what are we? We're skeptical, a little bit cynical about, I'm not sure these things actually happen. All right, anytime a Holy Spirit thing happens in the world today, what's our response? A little bit of skepticism, a little bit of cynicism about this whole religion thing, about this Holy Spirit thing. I'm not sure this kind of thing happens. And so they're not saying, oh, the Holy Spirit, yes, he does things like that from time to time. No, they're saying, who's the Father really? They're saying she's either crazy or lying. Maybe both. They want an investigation. There's going to be outrage. They want satisfaction from this situation. This small town crowd is thinking, oh, yes, it's on. Let's get the gossip chain going. Right? All of these things that would happen in 2022 were happening there in the first century. Now imagine Joseph's feelings, knowing what they're thinking, knowing the questions, knowing the response to this situation. He's thinking, I am forever going to be that guy. I'm either the guy who got his woman pregnant too soon or I'm the guy that got disrespected and dishonored by his wife. He knows that this is going to impact his status within the community, his, his potential as a future leader in this community, the potential status as an elder within this community as the years go by. All of that is in jeopardy. He's thinking about the impact of his future kids. Every time hereafter, I guarantee you, every time Mary got pregnant with a legitimate child, you know what the neighbor kids were saying. You know what the neighbor wives were saying. Little jabs here and there. Is this one legit? Was this one the Holy Spirit too? Right? We know people. We know how people do with these things. It's going to impact his entire family. It's going to impact his ability to get work at times, I imagine. It's going to impact his ability to sign contracts and get loans because what are the people in that tight-knit community saying? Well, he already screwed up the contract with Mary's dad. Why should I sign a contract with him? Why should I get involved with business dealings with him? Maybe he'd be accused of getting her pregnant and making her lie. Maybe he would be accused of rape. Joseph knows that what people think could ruin their lives. Joseph knows in this first century Jewish world that what people think could mean the end of their lives. This is a really, really big deal. And so Joseph attempts to kind of take the middle road. Like, all right, let's, we're going we're gonna to put an end to this relationship. Let's, let's pursue a divorce. But, 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 man, I love this woman. I want to embarrass her. I don't want to put her in a tough spot, right? So we're going to do this quietly. This isn't going to be some big public trial. I'm not going to pursue some type of adulterous execution, right? Now, does he believe her? I don't know. I don't know if he believes her. I believe he probably wanted to believe her. He's also facing a lot of public pressure, right? What are people going to say? What do people think? But as we get into verse 20 and 21, his choice, in my mind, gets a whole lot bigger becomes a whole lot bigger than marry her or not marry her. I think it gets a lot bigger than believe her or don't believe her. I think it gets taken up a notch. Let's hit Matthew 1.20. And this is where we get into our fear not moment for today. So after Joseph considered this, this idea of divorce but quietly, let's, let's be respectful, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people 
from their sins. So now he knows what she knows. Now Joseph has had his own angelic supernatural experience. And so now he has all of the info. This is no longer true or untrue. This is no longer marry her or don't marry her. Now it's proceed based on what God thinks or proceed based on what people think. Now he has that choice. Now he has that moment, that tension that we've all felt, that we've all faced on the school bus, in the dorm room, in a, on a pool deck, in front of other parents. Right? We are, he's facing that tension. And there's probably scriptures running around in his head. Right? And this is one of the amazing, what I love about our faith and the foundations that we have in the Old Testament that we carry through this family of faith. He's probably thinking about the same scriptures that we can go back to right now. All of the same ones, right? He's, he's maybe thinking about Isaiah 7. He's, he's remembering the prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14 that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. It's probably rolling around in his brain, this same scripture. Maybe in the midst of the tension, maybe in the midst of the fear that he's experiencing, he's thinking through Psalm 56, 3 and 4. Maybe he's thinking... When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Maybe he's thinking about Psalm 118.6. Same thing, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. Remember the, the presence of the Lord. In, it, the angel brought the glory of the Lord to him and brought him this message. Saying, Man, it, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can the neighbors do to me? What can Mary's parents do to me? What can the community do to me? And we find out how Joseph decided to move forward in verse 24 in response to the angel's message, in response to maybe the Old Testament scriptures that were running through his mind. It says, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife. Guys, Joseph is, first, he is so underrated when you read scripture. When you talk about a hero in scripture, so many people that we come across, men and women, Joseph, in my opinion, is so underrated as we read through. But again, imagine the response when he makes this decision, right? I mean, you're not going to divorce you. You're not going to pursue a public trial. You're not going to pursue satisfaction in some way. Don't you know? Because here's the one thing that has never changed about humans throughout the world, throughout the centuries, right? We know how to second guess. Right? And we know how to criticize tough decisions. We know how to show a lack of empathy. I imagine Joseph and Mary probably never forgot that. Imagine, probably imagine the moments that they experienced that stuck with them all the way to the end. But in the midst of it, they discovered something. If they didn't already know, they discovered something very important when it comes to walking with God. They discovered that obedience to God will often disappoint people. Obedience to God will often be criticized by people. And we don't know exactly how it played out for them, right? The scripture doesn't give us all the details of what it was like when they communicated that to her parents and told the neighbors and people started to find out how it was going to play out. And then the, the baby comes home with them uh, eventually from Bethlehem and their journeys throughout the world. But, but we know, right? We know people. We, we know how it played out for them. We know what the conversations were like, even as Jesus grew up, even as his younger siblings grew up. 
We know that in his ministry, his greatest criticism and doubt came when he came home, when he came to his hometown, right? Maybe some of that stemmed from his origin story. You've been a lie since birth. How are we going to believe that you're, of course, you're not the Messiah. This is ridiculous. And so we know that obedience to God will often disappoint people, but that's not the only truth they discovered, not the only truth that's revealed to us in this passage of Scripture. And this is why we don't have to fear what people think. It's because not only will obedience to God disappoint people, but on the flip side of that, obedience to God is often the conduit through which his power flows. Here's what I mean. The Savior of the world entered creation when two people said yes to God, when every single person in their life would have advised them not to do it. The gospel spread around the known world because 11 teenagers said yes to God even though that same world couldn't wait to kill them for it. We look at Peter uh, facing trial in Acts chapter 5. It's one of the most powerful uh, pieces of the New Testament, in my opinion. They're, they're under trial, facing questioning, right? And they're like, hey, stop preaching. Stop telling people about Jesus. Stop performing these miracles. Stop pursuing the impossible. In Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles applied, we must obey God rather than human beings. That was his moment on the school bus. That was his moment in the dorm room. That's his moment on the pool deck, facing far greater scrutiny than I've ever faced, of course. And yet we must obey God and not human beings. And then further down, the people who put him on trial are even speaking truth without even knowing it. And one of them says, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God you won't be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. There's others. There's a a young man, a a young king that we discover named David in the Old Testament. We see Moses' mother putting everything on the line. We see Abraham willing to leave his home and his family. And the more subtle things than that, we see a boy giving up five loaves and two fish. We see Nicodemus humbling himself in conversation before Jesus in John chapter 3. And out of that conversation comes John 3.16, which has changed so many lives over the centuries. You have no idea what you might set in motion when you simply obey what God has put on your heart to do. It's not always big. Ruth was gathering wheat for her mother-in-law when she met Boaz. David started by simply obediently tending sheep for his father, but he was being trained for more. We're going to talk more about shepherds next week. Paul made tents. Stephen was just helping feed the church's widows, right? Obedience often starts small. Start the conversation. Say yes to a serving opportunity. Build generosity into your family budget. Ask her out. Break up with them. Look into foster care or maybe Safe Families for Children, one of our ministry partners here at Fieldstone. Switch lunch tables. Investigate a life of full-time ministry, a life on the mission field. These are small steps of obedience. But knowing all the while, in the midst of some of those small acts of obedience, obedience is often the conduit through which God's power flows. Joseph valued the thoughts of God over the thoughts of people, and it made a world of eternal difference Fear not what people think of your obedience because God will use it. Let's pray.
God, we love you. We thank you for these, these stories that are, that are more than stories. God, they're, they're, they're retellings of real people and real situations. God, times when you showed up in crazy, tangible ways and gave your people an opportunity to be obedient. And through their obedience, God, we see so many things happening through Scripture, throughout history. God, I pray that you would honor us with those opportunities, those school bus moments, those dorm room moments, those pool deck moments, and living rooms with families and friends and sidewalk conversations with neighbors and passers-by. God, put us in those moments where we face the tension. And then, God, give us the courage to listen to your voice, be obedient to what you've called us to do, be obedient to what you've laid on our hearts, and then move. May this be a church that is obedient and sees the world changed based on the power you show through that. God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Thanks, guys. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you next week.